0: I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Molly Sargent, founder and CEO of Pro & Press. Molly is a dynamic keynote speaker, a master facilitator and author of the forthcoming book, Mastering Authentic Influence. Since 1985, Molly has successfully trained and coached tens of thousands of trusted advisors and teams and the leaders who love them to wield greater positive influence in their client-facing and colleague-collaborating exchanges face-to-face, voice-to-voice, and pen-to-pen. The focus of Molly's training and coaching is on helping trusted advisors and trusted experts make the most of precious face time with clients and colleagues. She began teaching her course participants how to successfully and pragmatically leverage mindfulness practices in everyday business exchanges. She playfully refers to this research supported curriculum as spinach in the cookies, so named because these extra skills are mixed into every core training from Pro and Press. Molly Sargent, welcome into the corner office.
1: Thank you so much, Brent. Nice to see you. And thanks for having ah, me.
0: Great to have you here. And uh, we've had a chance to chat a couple of times over the last couple of months. I've so been looking forward to this. You've had a wonderful career and, and like uh, m- myself, have reinvented yourself as we've gone through the pandemic. And, you know, what we always like to kind of start with is, you know, the early years and kind of where you grew up and what your early family life was like. So tell us a little bit about that. Are, are you from Connecticut originally?
1: I am not, and I know you're a neighbor of mine um, somewhere up in uh, in the state of Connecticut, so I'm down near New York City. No, I came to Connecticut in 1986, and it was to work in computer software, and I worked with a, a guy by the name of Andrew Tobias, and he wrote the first financial management software program for personal computers. It was called Managing Your Money. He was a wonderful guy. I worked with some really smart people early, early on in computer software and um, in Westport. And one of the things that was so, uh, uh, I didn't realize it at the time that I was in the middle of something big. And I had the opportunity to travel all over the country with this keynote speaker, introducing computers to people. And at the time, couldn't just tell people how to use a computer to manage finances you had to tell people how to ma- uh, what a computer was what a floppy right. disk was right. how they work <laughs> together so that was that was kind of um awesome so my i left philadelphia and um uh-huh. and pennsylvania was that, was
0: that home philadelphia is that where that
1: was to? home yeah, yeah. um and to come up here and i remember traveling down uh, a, a street in this little town called rowayton And I got halfway down the the road, and I thought, I'm going to live here. I just had this knowing, I must be, (laughs) I must live in this town with the sailboats, and everyone was out biking, and there were octogenarians hanging out with 20-year-olds, and I thought this is an incredible place. And then, um, and then I rounded a corner and met somebody and said, "I'm gonna marry him." And both things happened. There you go.
0: <laughs> well, let's let's rewind a little bit, though, back to Philadelphia in the early yeah. years. Uh, mom and dad, what do they do? And uh, yeah. brothers and sisters, tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I'm one of six kids from an Irish Catholic family. Wow. and okay. yeah. Uh, and were you in I, the, were I, you in the
0: rank order, middle, top, end?
1: Um, I have a sister and a brother uh, uh, um, who are ahead of me, but not by many months. And then, right, uh, and right. then I was born, and that was one, two, three years in a row. And then wow. three younger brothers, and the the two after were um, born very in very quick succession. And then my youngest uh, brother, who's ten years younger than I am. Got it. Got it. So
0: mom, mom obviously worked in the home. What about dad?
1: Yeah, mom went, Mom worked in the home, and dad, uh, my father was actually from a. Fairly poor family, and I suppose this is um, uh, cogent to what we're talking about, and, and of what it what it means to become a CEO, and what it means to start your own business, and then uh, to tough it out to get through uh, the things that are going to come into your purview as a CEO. Um, my father became a river ship pilot, which many people don't know a lot about, but it's uh, it's a wonderful thing um, to. He he goes out on a on a launch, or he did. And would climb up the side of a ship out by the at the mouth of the river, um, in his case the Delaware River, and become captain of that wow. ship coming in from anywhere in the world. Because he knows the channel, right?
0: Because he knows the
1: channel, yeah. And that wow, that really is cool. the thing. And and so to be able to climb up, take control of a massive Ooh. tanker full of oil, and bring it through the the you know shifting shoals of a ninety. Uh, a 90 mile river stretch, wow. uh, it it kind of introduced me to the ruggedness of what it means to be uh, self-employed. In his yeah. case, he's part of an association or he was, and, um, and that's slightly different being part of an association of people, but rather than completely a CEO or completely on your own. But there is something about having been self-determined and self-realized sure. that I think was very influential in everything that I did.
0: Yeah, cool. What were some of the other uh, inspirations or influences that uh, affected you in those early years?
1: Well, I think one of the things which was kind of interesting to me, so it's an Irish Catholic family, <laughs> and <laughs> my father having come from poverty, and this uh, this is, um, I think this is an important point for people to understand is how to contextualize what you might learn from somebody early on versus what is relevant today and how to perhaps be a little soft and forgiving, even though it might've been somewhat detrimental. So my father did not believe that women should go to school past high school and he didn't think it was worth the investment. And he was just a pragmatic guy in a lot of ways, but really the issue was that um, it was not financial. He came from poverty and he aspired to, be more like the wealthy people whom he came to meet through his career and one of the things that that he began to realize is that a lot of the wealthy people their wives didn't work so now we're going back to the 1950s for this mindset so fast forward he has you know two girls and four boys, and he puts the boys through law school and med school and and the girls he was reluctant to send to college. So my sister and I actually snuck out of the house she before I did, but snuck out of the house to apply for college. and got into school and paid for a own way to go
0: through it scholarship or yeah um
1: i i managed to become a resident assistant at penn state university it was in-state tuition at the time which already made it not very expensive but then i became a uh, a um, resident assistant and that paid for room board and half my tuition so So by the time i and then i i got a, a, a partial scholarship to to uh, study over um, in France, and I did that for a year, and I got a job there teaching English as a second language at one of the universities in Tours, um, below Paris. So there were a lot of things that just had me uh, had me realizing that you can you can do what you need to do. You're just going to have yeah. to get a little scrappy. <laughs>
0: well, and, and, and rebellious. What did Dad say or do? Yeah, what did Dad say or do when he found out about it?
1: It was funny for somebody who wasn't going to pay for the education that he had quite a few op- opinions about it, right, <laughs> about right. what would be worthy to, to undertake uh, study wise and so forth. So um, I think he 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 got on board. I think he he yeah. was very much about education. He was a self educated person himself, and right, he right. loved. We we were extensive in our reading. We were paid a dollar to memorize poetry among other things, uh, pages and pages of poetry. So I can, uh, I can. Give you, you know, start to recite some poetry for for someone at a cocktail party. Makes it very interesting at times. So there were things that he just did that were disciplines around self education that I think were ironically um, counter to that one moment in time where he didn't think that maybe college was the best investment. Um, But eventually he got on board.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What kind of activities were you involved with as a youth? Was there sports, music? You obviously did some work as well to, to squirrel away some funds for that. tell us a little bit about those. Things.
1: Well, I was I, I, I went I was a captain of the cheerleaders. I was a, um, vice president of my class and president of my class, I think, and then vice president of my, my school um, in senior year, right. and and so I was mostly involved in things that were in uh, were about leadership. I was a runner. Not so much as my sister, who was an an amazing runner, has run for 40 years, but I was a runner and a gymnast and mostly solo sports. I wasn't much of a team sport person, um, but a lot of solo sports, except for if you consider cheerleading a sport, we were, Uh, we were fairly athletic at the time, but yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: What about entrepreneurial things? Were there things that you did to, to raise money going through high school, coming up to college?
1: Well, I, I I started working when I was very young, babysitting, and um, and then doing things like working at Burger King and whatever it would take to just make some money, um, and and I loved that. I, I I really did enjoy being inside a business, and it it served me when I first got into business in um, when I was in. Computer software because I already understood what it meant to be in retail, and so mm-hmm. here I was trying to bring software into a marketplace that didn't really exist in, in except in, uh, you know, it, it was in its nascence back in the early right. '80s, and yeah. and so understanding what it meant to be in a retail organization and how to appeal to clients and what the the staff in those stores would need in order to be successful, so. I did a lot of things that had to do with retail just because it was easy to get the jobs. They were uh, close by, so it was easy to get there. Yeah.
0: And great customer service experience, right? I mean, that that public-facing types of jobs are terrific in terms of developing your relationships with others.
1: Uh, But that part became fairly evident to me probably to the people around me more so than to me. I just was having a lot of fun meeting people and I think people started noticing, hey, she has a lot of fun meeting people. <laughs> She's got and, a
0: personality. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, and I and I I love to deeply connect and I loved and I can make I enjoy getting to know someone in a very short period of time and understanding just how much influence you can have in one another's lives through a very brief interaction. And so I think that that came through in the way that I conducted myself in my early, let's not even call it career, it was really jobs, but also in my leadership positions. And then I remember, I probably fast forward, it might be too early for where you're headed in the interview, but one of the Early jobs that I had was working in Darien, Connecticut, with a small company that did sales training into financial services, and mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I had been able to stand up in front of adult um, rooms of adults and uh, and teach because of my experience with Andrew Tobias and because of my career in um, in teaching English as a second language, all of a sudden I was working with people who um, who who were uh, sending me into all these financial services companies, Bank of America, Citibank, and so on Mm. back in the 80s. And they began to notice that not only could I teach in front of the rooms, but that I was converting into upsells. And Mm. they were noticing that the intimacy that I was creating with my contacts on site made it easier either for them to sell or that I'd be introducing things inadvertently just as a, a need to help them solve a problem that I heard them say and say, well, you know, we happen to to do something in our firm for another organization and it might be helpful to you as well. So all of a sudden I was becoming instrumental in selling and didn't even realize it. I was just <laughs> connecting really well with people and offering solutions to problems that they were bringing to my attention because we had such great connection. <laughs> and before that. you know it, I they I remember the very first even before Andrew Tobias, I, um, I was working with a software company in Philadelphia just for a very short period of time. It was called Eagle Software. And I was going out teaching people again, how to be effective using computers out in the retail world, but I wasn't selling, but I came back to the office one, one day from, I think I came back from Texas early on. And They were, my boss was so excited. He had this box that he wanted to give to me and he handed it to me. It was a box of my first business cards and I opened it up and it said sales representative on it. And I burst into tears (laughs) (laughs) because I said, I "I don't sell. I, I work with people. I train people. I teach people. I connect with people, but I didn't think of myself as a salesperson and 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 to me, salesperson had somewhat of a negative connotation. Negative to
0: connotation. It. Yeah. Right.
1: So yeah. that was that was an early introduction to the fact that someone had recognized that I was good at connecting, good at um, identifying what was going on, good at positioning what we had in a way that actually was influential and converted people. And they labeled it sales, and I didn't recognize that that's actually what <laughs> I'd love to do. <laughs>
0: that's great. What was that first job you took out of Penn State?
1: And so it was with I was walking through Grand Central Station. I tell I tell millennials this now, or you know, younger um, professionals, and they're like, "That really happened." I was walking through Grand Central Station, and I recognized someone from, I don't even know where. I think it was I go to Cape May, New Jersey, most of the summers during my youth, and. Um, I recognized this man walking across Grand Central and I walked over, I said, aren't you? And uh, David and, and, uh, he said, well, yes, I am. And we got talking in Grand Central Station. He said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I teach English as a second language, but I'm up in New York for an interview. And he said, you teach adults. I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, I'm with a little company called Eagle Software in Philadelphia. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay. And he said, and we need somebody to go around mm. and teach people how to use computers. Um, and it's adults. And since you not only teach, but you teach adults, would you be willing to do that? I said, I'd love wow. to. This was on wow. a Wednesday. He said, we need you in New Orleans on Monday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I love And I said, it. Yeah, can do. Point. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. So you yeah. went straight down to New Orleans the following day. Did you bother to get a letter of employment along the way?
1: or I think I did. I think, I, did. I, think I think, I think, although, although, you know, if I, leave it to me, I, I didn't because those were the days where you shook hands and everyone yeah, agreed to, to that point. But, you know, yeah, the, the yeah. other piece that I think is really instrumental, and this kind of gets to a foundation of a lot of what I do inside business now Um, I had friends who had gone to Penn State, and they were studying, which at the time it no longer exists, but they were studying travel agency work. And the reason that they wanted to be travel agents is because they would get to travel so much. So here I come back in, and I'm calling my friends, saying, hey, I got this really cool job. I'm headed to New Orleans, and I'm going to be going to California. And before that, I'm going to be going to Chicago. And here they are sitting behind computers, having taken their their jobs and their careers in the direction of so that they can travel and how dare i with my teaching degree turn around and be, and start traveling all over so it, it fast forward on that theme of look for the behavior not for the title yeah, yeah and and works. that that became foundational to almost everything I did going forward, and also became foundational in the work that I started to do. So for, I worked for eight years for Development Dimensions International, uh, DDI, and they have a beautiful website, I recommend, ddiworld.com and i had the privilege to get in there in i think it was 1990 it was it was early on in um in the success level of ddi which was a very influential human resources company and i had the chance often to work with the, the founder bill Byam. and bill used to say all the time do not pay attention to the fads and the titles go to the behavior it's the most sustainable mm. thing that you can do so That's when so tqm and uh, total quality management and Team uh, dynamics all became faddishly um, transitional through the 90s. It didn't matter. We were always at the behavior level, which is the sub level, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't change. That's deep, deep ocean, whereas all of these other thematic uh, things that are going on happen to be more like white caps on the surface. Meanwhile, deep underneath is what's the behavior and how do you identify it? How do you hire for it? How do you Uh, trained to it how do you hold it accountable and measure its impact and if you can stay at that level or at least have that on your radar that's where your human resources become most influential and most easily uh, selected uh, cultivated hired and made to be happy
0: (laughs) right right it's the true north isn't it yeah when when was the first time you started uh, managing people Molly?
1: it was at ddi uh, mm-hmm. and and i would say i started managing people mostly from an influence standpoint rather than a title standpoint so yeah. i was selling by the time i got to ddi in the 90s and what i would need to do is not only identify and and uh, p- prospective clients and go and sell them but then i would help to resource and manage those projects yeah, and what year was that? pretty much head up that part of it and it was a shared services capability. So I began to understand the importance of needing to influence people and make sure that they understood the fundamentals of what was going on, get them to buy in and get get equally enthusiastic about it so that they'd want to be there because they had they had options of where right. they spent their time. Right. There were people doing similar jobs to to what I was doing in different regions or different territories. And I would need to go and collect these people and make sure that they stayed connected with my clients and stayed connected with, my, um, with the uh, agendas that we had and do it on time. So I really consider the first management of a team that I did was really more an influence of you know, almost like mercenaries, if you will, and mm-hmm. needing to create a context that had them feel like that they were part of something, even though... I didn't really have the title to expect anything from them beyond what they were willing to give me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we've all had uh, mentors and, and perhaps a few tormentors along the way in our <laughs> career. Tell, tell us a little bit about a few that you've had of both.
1: <laughs> um, mentors and I, I, I've had so many incredible mentors, both intentional and unintentional, I would say. Um, right the probably the earliest ones are that gentleman who recognized that I could stand up in front of right, uh, right. in front of people and uh, in and asked me to sight unseen, ask me to come to New Orleans and be in front of his clients. that's that's a high risk um, point. So, being re- yeah. yeah. And, and so being recognized by somebody and then cultivated into and invited into a company, what a privilege, you know, to be part of something that they'd created and, and given access. Um, and then when I went into this little company in Darien called Consultative Resources Corporation, it was a, a magical group of people. They had all come from a company out of Cambridge that was affiliated with Harvard and, and, an MIT, um, project as I understood it where it was the early days of creative problem solving in a focus group context and they learned how to ask questions and listen intently in a focus group context and they thought you know this would really apply it's the late 70s Mm. this would really apply in a sales organization so they brought those concepts forward into what we now know as consultative selling and I I spent five years with them from, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the dates. I believe it was around eighty five to ninety, let's call it. <clears throat> and um, every quarter, everyone in the company would have a sit down with every other person in the company, mm-hmm. and we would have to answer, we would spend about fifteen to twenty minutes together, each person in the in the company with every other person, and we would answer the questions what do I really enjoy about working with you? And we'd need to be Mm. uh, specific in our anecdotes that we told and behavioral in our anecdotes that we told. And what, if anything, would we recommend to one another about how we might grow in our ability to work more closely and more effectively together? And we did that quarterly. Mm -hmm. The other thing that Mm -hmm. happened, and this was amazing, I spent the first six months of that time traveling around with them with zero expectation other than I take notes and pay attention. I mean, that Um, just is not done anymore. And then the third thing that was remarkable was we were put on videotape almost every week of five years. And we would play back the videotapes of us engaged in client meetings or uh, over the phone, obviously, or engaged in teaching in front of a room and we'd have a camera on. And someone in the company would give us feedback on how we were Um, comporting ourselves. So again... And an, not only an underpinning of behavioral specificity and attention to what are you saying, what are you doing at any given moment, but on top of it, to have the commitment of these people to my cultivation, knowing that I could leave the company at any time, I did not. Re- I I knew how special it was because no one else was doing it, but I right. didn't realize ex- how extraordinary it was. Yeah. yeah very exactly. very grateful to those people. Yeah.
0: I love it. We've talked a lot about behaviors and, you know, we've all grown up and I, I mentioned the torment or somewhat in jest, but I know we can all kind of also cite certain things that we've seen in others, not to mention any names where you go, wow, I just never want to do that. Share with us some of the things that you've seen, you know, in management leaders, maybe that you work closely with, or maybe in, even at clients that were really, you know, kind of resonating for you as to that's the kind of person I do not want to be.
1: Yeah, um, so <laughs> you can edit this part out if you are so so desiring. Um, <clears throat> I like to say I can work with anyone on the planet, and I mean that truly. I can work with anyone on the planet under one condition, that we each are committed to knowing when the other one is being an asshole, and we know when we are <laughs> ourselves. Like, go ahead that. and be a jerk. This like, will I'll not be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: It's so true, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Well, I can I can be in a room with someone and be there's there's a concept of being consciously unconscious. So so I can be with anyone anywhere on the planet and work with them intently. But when I get to a point where we're Either they recognize or I recognize one of us as being an asshole. And as, both, as long as both of us are on the same planet, we're happy right. about understanding that that's the case. So I can tolerate the context in which someone says, I'm going to go a little consciously unconscious right now. I'm going to indulge myself. Would you be willing to hear? Mm. And then they become that jerk for a minute and a half or I do. And I say, (laughs) this isn't working, that's not working, (laughs) even to the point where I say, and it's all your fault, and they're still listening patiently, kindly, so that I can go, I know this is about me, and I know I'm going to have to shift this, but right now it's about, I need to move the energy that's in, that's here, that's blocking me, I need to hear myself speak about something that's frustrating and later i'll be open to feedback later and it could be five minutes from now or five months from now i don't know but i'm going to want to to really delve in and find out what's going on but right now i just need to move energy so the people i have the hardest time being in a room with are the ones who are not who are creating negative waves through a team and not aware that they are the they are the catalyst of those of those, those negative of waves yeah. and what so their, their primary job or their primary uh, behavior is projection because right. they'll recognize right. that something's wrong but they won't bring it back to their own contribution yeah. and so what it does is it leaves the team befuddled and they right. don't know how the heck to tell the boss <laughs> hey maybe there's something here for each of us sure but right. are you aware of your instigation of these issues that we're having? Are you willing to take this on? And only the bravest of them will step up and say something. Yeah. Only yeah. the bravest. I and it. and it's it's unfortunate because I watch teams go down in flames when everyone except the boss knows what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and the boss can't can see it. <laughs> and the boss can't be approached.
0: Right. And of course. and yeah, so it just right.
1: continues, yeah. everyone stumbles along until finally it either falls apart or someone gets frustrated and says it, but they get fired, but everyone else benefits downstream from the fact that the the feedback was delivered. And you think, oh, uh, you know, there, but by the grace of God, go I. So, yeah.
0: That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Melly. Well, just as a little bit about our history, we first connected before the pandemic. Uh, We were planning to do the podcast. Of course, we all went into that tunnel. Um, mm-hmm. And we both kind of went through a mutual transformation. And and I want to hear mm-hmm. about yours because Pro mm-hmm. Impress has come out differently the other side. And share with us a little bit about kind of the thinking process that you went through, how you kind of changed your life in so many ways. And, and, and really now, you know, for the balance of our time, tell us about Pro Impress and, and, and your relaunch that's coming up soon.
1: How lovely. Thank you for the invitation. Pro Impress was, was cranking along. I, I started Prone Press in 2009, right after the market um, crashed. Yeah.
0: Same, and, same year we were founded, interestingly enough.
1: Okay, and and I yeah. had a different company called Skillspring that I started in 97. So I actually started the first business, but for legal reasons, I, I changed the name of the company, and it was called Professional Impressions Consulting. Um, by the way, I had to change, I, I happened to be able to get the URL proimpress.com, so I went with that. And then later, I changed the company name, DBA, and doing business as, to Pro Impress because the my clients kept needing to look at the screen in order to introduce me at a keynote. And I thought, that's not good if your client can't remember the right. name of your company. <laughs> so I changed I just started using Pro Impress instead of Professional Impressions Consulting. It's a whole lot easier to say. So in in we spent the majority of, t- of the fourth quarter of 2019 building business. And we had a really good running start coming into 2020. We had lots of of work on the books. I hired two new people right after Thanksgiving, so yep. pr- um, ramped them all up in uh, in December. And we were relaunching our website, recasting. We were doing everything. We were gonna. This was going to be our banner year. And in I can't remember exactly the day, but it was early. It was probably mid February, actually. Every one of our clients, and we work for major corporations fortune fortune 50 companies some of the biggest uh uh, pharmaceuticals financial services professional services and we started getting calls to cancel cancel the work and in 48 Mm. hours 100 of our business fell out of the books wow and i remember and this is thank heaven i had started doing mindfulness training with a beautiful group called hendrix out in Ojai, California, Katie and Gay Hendricks, and I worked with them for two and a half dedicated years and then continued to, to be part of their community um, ever since. But I knew enough that when things got that big, it was a better reaction not to scream and shout, <laughs> right. but instead just to kind of anchor myself in a more of an inner knowing that something big's happening, something big wants to happen, and you're not going to stop it, so get on board. So I called everybody together who was working with us both full-time as well as part-time, and we had associates, we had consultants. Um, I had at one point 31 consultants who were um, contracted with us whom we could send out at a moment's notice, and they were looking to us for work, and I just called as many people together as I could get in a very short time and then called everybody else individually and said, I don't know what this is, but when pharmaceutical companies <laughs> Start canceling work because of something Something's happening happen around the world um, let's pay attention this is this is big this is I, I kind of knew it was going to be a tsunami I just didn't know what kind of a tsunami it was going to be just because of our access to these incredible clients and the fact that they, were calling us and saying, we're going to have to call it for the year, not even for a month or two or delay no, we're calling it for the year and we'll get back to you in due time. I thought this is kind of a remarkable and unprecedented uh, event of my lifetime and possibly many others. So I quickly, and I I also have the scrappiest, most wonderful um, uh, CPA at the time who, because she was working with, entrepreneurial companies was among the first in there with she didn't even tell me she just went and applied for PPP applied for small business association so within a really short period of time we were we were funded for making this pivot into you know uh slow down. <clears throat> and um I'm very grateful to her and just recognizing that something big was happening and recognizing that we're gonna need to we're going going to need to pivot and get on board with what was happening it was out of our control that was that was pretty pivotal and pretty important to us yeah
0: yeah and so where did that kind of take you personally from how you wanted to organize your life and in, you know kind of get the uh the business relaunched which is is coming up soon
1: mm-hmm well, <laughs> I made the choice to unplug to the uh, extent that I sat on a couch for pretty much two years and learned uh, a higher level of meditation. <laughs> I also went back and pulled out old journals and started mining my journals for poetry I had written, and I put together 500 pages of old poems that I wrote, and then I revamped that. Where I have a book come out, coming out um, on that is a poetry book uh, for women, and it's called um, Sane Response. So I did a lot of things that were just powered down, and and explored what do I really want to do if everything is so upended what do I really want to do? And one of the other things that became uh, important to me during the time that we were kind of on hiatus, if you will, is this is going to get super interesting when we come back out because tech enablement is going to be so important. And I happen to have a, um, I'm part of a tech startup that is also going on and we just finished our, um, our, um, friends and family round, and we're in our A round right now. And I've known for a long time that tech enablement of learning and development inside companies was so critical. And come, I was watching some of the big, big financial services and others. I was trying to play with them in in that realm. But, you know, compliance being what it is, and, and necessarily so, there were all kinds of constraints on what one can do with tech enablement. But I knew it was going to be a matter of time before compliance learned and and made some space for people to learn on phones and learn on tablets and just get outside of classrooms in order to really be well served. So I've been so I have a, a partial patent um, with um, a colleague of mine, a, a business partner of mine. Um, it's now off patent, but it's from 2008 and it was a in a high involvement learning um, platform and we had it in front of everyone in the early teens and everyone kept inviting us back, (laughs) but no one bought it. It was, it was too Mm. ahead of its time. And I've been there before. Remember I was in software um, in the early eighties. And I was, I was in a place where, you know, we were teaching people and then it was really for the benefit of the market rather than benefit of the company. And it's just a thing that happens if you happen to be somebody who's willing to play inside the tech world. So, so we, I've been on the lookout for how to tech enable, but I knew there were constraints inside the fortune 50 level companies we were working with because of compliance. So we were doing, I I think we were the first ones at bank of America to bring iPads into the classroom Mm -hmm. and to have that sanctioned. We had to make sure things like it, uh, each of the iPads could not talk to the internet. Um, They were erased at the end and they were authorized that they were erased of the practices that were conducted, et cetera. So it was, it was slow going, but, but, I, I love the efforts of these companies trying to make it work. Well, what happens then in COVID as we all well know is we all had to suffer through the moment where you become a cat in, you know, inadvertently because you don't know how to use zoom, you become a cat in your zoom call and you think I would never suffer through this kind of pain and this kind of learning curve if, it, if it, if there were any alternative. So The one thing, one of the many things, actually, that was disruptive, but perhaps um, helpful to us, is that the entire world got on board with technology, and now everyone knows what a QR code is and how to use it. Everyone understands what a Zoom call is and how to how to use that technology. And now there's the expectation, uh, not just the the hope, but the expectation. Well, how are you going to do that on on a a smartphone? Um, how will that transfer mm. over to um, my computer? How will they all work together? So I'm kind of loving the new world. I'd been hoping for it a whole lot long ago, yeah. but, yeah. Um, but now that it's here, it does open up all kinds of wonderful opportunities. And the one thing I will just say uh, uh, that is, I think so critical, my team and I have been going through this as we speak. When I, when we are going to engage with partners for this tech enablement, it's, it's not enough just to hire people and say, okay, you go do your tech thing and get back to us, because the old world of technology for um, an for a a small business but even large businesses was that tech was ancillary to the business it was kind of the thing over to the side that helped us from time to time but really it continued to be that we had this core business that we were up to but what's happened along the way, is a higher and higher level of integration between the processes and the engagements of clients and your ability to map them over to some technology and have that technology truly enable that communication and truly create levels of efficiency that were not even possible before. And you can say, well, a Luddite might say, oh, I don't really want to get into that. But what that does is that relegates you to the obsolete business you have to get into the game you have no choice unless you want to cap your business out at 200 or two hundred fifty thousand, which is usually about the level to which an entrepreneurial company of services of coaching and so on can can get to without a lot of tech enablement but if you want to go higher than that what i'm finding is you need to be looking at the technology as not ancillary, but core. It, it's You don't want the tail wagging the dog, so it's not about the technology. It's still about the service, but it all backs up to it's about the client experience. And so <laughs> what I say to people, to my own team, is the old world model was what I would call your special sauce, so let's say tomato sauce, and you got to put it on top of the technology, which could be linguine or fettuccine or ziti. <laughs> I like food analogies. But the new model is you're not putting your tomato sauce on top of pasta and then picking it up and putting it on a different one if you so choose. The new model is everything that you're doing, you're making tomato fettuccine. So Mm. if you've ever seen tomato fettuccine, it's red and you're not getting the tomato sauce out. (laughs) (laughs) they're woven together they go so woven
0: together right they're so
1: tightly knit to one another that you can't extract one from the other to to be able to do that means that i've been really really good at for instance what i do which is um teaching people how to look at nuanced skills associated with being client facing how do Mm. you i say you know the nothing neutral in a client facing interaction pen to pen screen to screen, voice to voice, um, and, and face to face, there's nothing neutral. So I've been spending years and years and years working with top executives and client facing teams, cross-functional, etc., helping them get more effective at optimizing how they use every single thing that they do and say, and how they show up mm-hmm. in order to communicate their trustworthiness in competitive, commoditized businesses to clients who have lots of choices. And, In the meanwhile, I would turn to my tech people and say, yeah, yeah, make that happen. But I wouldn't really get to know the tech. Well, that really burned me. And the way it burned me is Bank of America kindly sponsored me in a beautiful program that cost them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I am grateful to them for the investment. They now have in perpetuity licensing on something that um, uh, replaces some of the classroom time, and, and, and they did this in 2017-18, but it was, I made the choice to go with some wonderful technology people, but I didn't realize when I was making the choices that I was locked onto a, a kind of technology that was not portable, to other clients. So here I had built this entire thing with the dream that I'm going to take this and it's going to become a major asset inside other companies that I could, and that was the license um, agreement I had with, with the client. And turns out it's not portable. So Mm. we've needed to reconstruct the entire thing. And, and so my, what I say to my team is, and what we're doing right now is getting knowledgeable at a granular level on what we need technology to do and what each of our resources whom we hire needs to be able to deliver to us. And what we're finding as you get into technology is it's still the wild, wild west in a lot of ways. Mm, So there's terminology that one provider, say for social media services or for um, something that we just learned about, um, 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 what's it called? Uh, brand links, I think it's called. Different kinds of technology along the user experience pathway, we're trying to tech enable and I'll go to these different providers and ask them well what do you do and they'll use these terms and when we dig in we realize they're saying very different things and I mm. don't think it's a nefarious intent everyone shows up wanting to do well the problem is that I I think that the standardization and the codification of what it means to be tech enabled especially in the business I'm in which is learning and development and um, coaching services I think it's it's still growing it's still growing so we're at the we're we're all you know, cowboys out here trying to make good things happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: it's a big inflection point. Yeah.
0: Well, Molly, all very exciting stuff, but we are just about out of time, but we Mm -hmm. always have one last question we always ask our guests and that's what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who perhaps has their eyes on the corner office themselves or like you (laughs) wants to be an entrepreneur someday and, and and create an exciting company. Uh, Uh,
1: thank you for that invitation. I think the, the thing for me when I talk to people, uh, and maybe it's just because thematically it's up for me and my team right now. Have a bias for action. So that's that's mm. a really key piece. Yeah. We do need really informed decision-making and we need a bias for action because there's <clears throat> many of us are the oldest people in the room now. Uh, there's nobody else to look to <laughs> for, am I doing it the right way and get our little gold I... star? At this stage, it's just do it and see what happens, and get the feedback, and then be prepared to, uh, to shift, and the other is the new environment is really one of collaboration, and that is brand new. It used to be that I know something, and I can prove to you that I know something, because I have all of these other clients who are willing to speak on my behalf, so you'll get to know what I know after you pay me something. Well, that is not the case anymore Mm. i think it's gary vaynerchuk whom i like very much gary v says you know jab 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 right hook is the name of his book which i recommend and and it is the this idea give it away give it away give it away you're cultivating a clientele from the very first moment that they that they get to know you on a social media or any kind of a what's called a traffic feed or any kind of a feed that that lets them um, start to know you. And so nurturance is really important before you start trying to sell somebody. Right. So we're about to go out and find out just how this works when our tech enablement is fully pulled together. I'm hoping by the time this launches uh, or yeah. by the time this airs, um, I'll, yeah. I'll be in that position already. But it'll be interesting to start getting the feedback from the marketplace. Uh, pivot make some nuanced decisions and enable ourselves to really come back out in a way that is of genuine service, that cultivates real connection to clients and adds value to their day and impact in their client relationships. Because that's we win when our clients are able to actually connect effectively with their own clients. And we want everything we're doing to um, lead to that kind of an, uh, of a success story on the part of our own clients.
0: So true. So true. Well, Molly Sargent, CEO and founder of Pro Impress, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroy.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.